We're reading Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 15, and on the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 1424. 1424. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Good morning. Good to see you all. I don't think I have said Happy New Year yet, so Happy New Year. Great to have you all with us. Friends, we are going to do what we've been talking about, and that is meet Jesus, because that's what we do when we read God's Word. Um, We meet His Son in His Word. Do you want to bow your heads, and we'll pray, and ask for God's help to hear Him. Father, we ask today, by Word and Spirit, that we might meet your Son, Jesus. Father, we pray that whatever Jesus we have in our minds, that we would conform it, we would reshape it in light of Scripture so that we might know him truly. Father, please be at work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, There are lots of movie depictions of Jesus. Uh, Jesus captures the imagination of movie makers And over the last 50 years, there are a heap, I know because I Googled this week, a heap of movie portrayals of Jesus. I want to give you a kind of a little survey of them, right? I'm going to go right back to the 1960s. By the way, this is a long time before I was born. I just want to clarify that. Back to the 1960s, I'm sure I saw this movie one Saturday afternoon in the Saturday afternoon movie matinee on TV. This is a film called The King of Kings, which uh, covers the whole life of Jesus and tries to 
generally tell the story of the Gospels. Um, to quote one author, the movie, however, transforms Jesus into a peace and love Californian hippie with beautiful things to say and uh, sun-bleached blonde looks to boot. Right? There's one presentation of Jesus. In the 1980s, uh, you might remember the film by Martin Scorsese called The Last Temptation of the Christ, which presented Jesus as a kind of repressed prophet who was struggling with his own internal stuff. In 2003, um, hands up who remembers uh, The Da Vinci Code? Does anyone remember this? Uh, this was really big. This was a cultural phenomenon at the time. And Jesus was presented as this wise teacher who taught wise things and then settled down with his wife and his kids. And they all ended up living somewhere in the south of France, all covered over by a big conspiracy in the Catholic Church. Tom Hanks was there, though, to uncover the truth. All right, that was, it was great. 2016, more recently, uh, Last Days in the Desert, starring Ewan McGregor, so a more Scottish representation of Jesus, Ewan McGregor, uh, which has Jesus out in the wilderness wrestling with self-doubt. Uh, I'm quoting actually from one movie review which said, Jesus here is a nice guy struggling to overcome the voices in his head. That's a presentation of Jesus there. <clears throat> now, often, not always, but often, the movies have this kind of type of Jesus that they present to us. Wonderful guy, great teacher, nice bloke, but not too much more than that. Um, however, when you read the Gospels, when you actually pick up one of the first depictions of Jesus' life, they represent a very very different Jesus. Yes, the Gospels tell us that Jesus taught amazing things, yes. But from the very first words, they want to introduce you to a Jesus who is far more than a mere teacher or a mystic. So much more than that. Uh, this year, we're actually going to work our way through one of the Gospels. And in preparation for that, we thought it would be good to refresh our minds about who it is that we're dealing with when we read the Gospels. We're going to use Mark as a guide and read what Mark had to say about who Jesus is. Now, look, if you've heard all of this before, hopefully this is a reminder of who we're going to meet in the Gospels. Hopefully it does that for you. If you haven't, I hope it's a good moment for you to meet Jesus. So the first thing we're going to look at as we look at different aspects of who Jesus is, is the fact that the Gospels declare him to be king. King. Messiah, Lord. And we're going to work through Mark chapter 1 and hear four different voices tell us that Jesus is indeed King. If you've got your Bibles open, I want to invite you to come to Mark chapter 1. And first, the first voice there is actually Mark's voice. He's the author of the Gospel. He's an early disciple of Jesus. He worked with the Apostle Peter. Uh, and so from Peter, he put together this account Mark is famous for having this punchy, urgent account of Jesus' life. He packs a lot into a few words. That is his style. And you see that even in the very first sentence. Come there to verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, there is a lot in that verse. Um, just so you know, gospel... 
uh, literally means a declaration of good news, right? Mark is saying he has this declaration of good news. In, in the ancient world, if you had won a battle or there was a, a new member of the royal family, you would proclaim a gospel. Good news. Good news that has to be shared. So, for example, here's the gospel that was proclaimed at the birth of Caesar. This is what, it, uh, what was announced. Whereas the providence that ordains our whole life has established with zeal and distinction that which is most perfect in our life by bringing Augustus, who she filled with a virtue as a, filled with virtue as a benefaction to all humanity, she sent to us and to those after us a saviour who put an end to war and brought order to all things. This was the beginning of the good news to the world through him. Does that sound kind of familiar to you? I actually think when Mark writes the beginning of his gospel and he declares it to be the gospel, the good news regarding Jesus, the Messiah, he knows what he's doing. He's writing here a royal announcement and he's connecting it to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. This is a, a, a political statement, really, isn't it? There is a new king, this person, Jesus. Did you notice that he called him Jesus the Messiah or the Christ in some translations? That's a, a royal term. It's from the Hebrew word for anointing. A Messiah is an anointed one, the one anointed to be king. And by the way, the word Messiah, if you translate it into Greek, it, it is translated as Hoch Christos, the Christ. It's not his surname, if that's what you're thinking it was. Mark is saying here, good news. Royal announcement. Jesus, the one who was anointed to be king, has come. He's Messiah. He's also son of God. Even that has these royal overtones. A son of God was what the people of Israel would call a king. As Mark's gospel continues, you begin to see that he was thinking about the Son of God as meaning so much more than just simply a king. It was bigger than that. But Mark here in his opening sentence is simply saying this. There is good news. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God has come. That's what he wants us to know. Uh, if you've ever wondered what this Christian thing was all about and it seems incredibly confusing to you or maybe difficult to penetrate, can I apologise? I'm sorry that we Christians sometimes make things a little more complex than we should. I think Mark is incredibly easy to understand here. The heart of what we're on about is Jesus. He is good news. Good news for the world. He's the King. He's the Son of God. That is our message. And let me say, for those of us who belong here in churches, you know, and live our lives in churches, I think Mark's directness here is really instructive. Our gospel is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what we're on about. Um, our gospel is not a way of living or a particular social program or organ music or traditional style services or less traditional style services, I'm not speaking against any of those things, but the heart of what we're on about is that we proclaim that Jesus has come and that is good news. We want people to hear that. We want people to meet him.
So there's the first voice, Mark's voice. The second voice, John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist was this really important figure in the first century. He was a social reformer and spiritual leader. We actually know a lot about John the Baptist's life from the other historians of the time. But in verses 2 and 3, Mark actually puts together all these Old Testament quotes which tell us John the Baptist's significance in the light of the person of Jesus. Come there, see in verse 3, Mark quotes the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks about this return from exile that, that is about to happen. Mark is saying that something like Israel's return from exile all, the, all those years ago is about to take place. Israel will be established as God's people. And to do that, to prepare God's people, you have John the Baptist going out to the desert to preach. And I want you to notice something about his attire there. Do you notice that he's dressed in camel's hair and he eats locusts and honey? Now, that's significant. It's not that Mark's having a go at his clothing there. That is actually the school uniform, if I can put it like that, for an Old Testament prophet. Uh, particularly, John has taken his fashion direction from the prophet Elijah. In the book of Kings, we're told that Elijah wore camel's hair and he ate locusts and honey. And Israel had these hopes that God might at some time do a new work. He, he might re-establish the people of Israel. And the prophets had said that that would happen when one like the prophet Elijah would come to prepare things, to get things ready for this new thing that God would do. Do you get what Mark is saying here? He's saying here is one like the prophet Elijah, just as it was promised, who's come to prepare God's people for this new thing that God would do. And so John comes to baptise the people of Israel. Now, this is actually a little surprising. If you didn't know this, um, converts to the Jewish faith would be baptised, right? That's part of what they would do. They had to cleanse themselves. This was the symbolism from their old way of life, their pagan uh, way of life and being associated with pagan gods. And so they would be baptised in order to be received as a member of the Jewish faith and community. Um, John is doing something kind of, well, provocative here. He's calling Jews, not pagans, but Jews to be baptised. This is actually a really provocative thing to do. He's implying that Israel actually has a problem, that Israel needs cleansing. And so he calls them back to the Jordan River. Again, significant, because this is where the people of Israel first entered the Promised Land. This is the place where it all started. Here is what John is saying. He's actually saying something like, look, we have to start again. We've got to go back to where, it's, where it all began and set everything new. I want you to imagine um, the Governor-General or the Prime Minister or somebody, somebody like that, someone declares that we as a nation are all going to get back together at Sydney Cove, we're going to stand there at Sydney Cove and collectively repent for what we've done, for the wrongs that we've perpetrated as a nation. Do you get what John is doing? Do you see how provocative it is, what he's doing here? 
He's actually saying to Israel, come back, repent, turn back, because God is about to do something new. Have a look at verse 7. This is what he says. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, John's saying, yes, there is one coming after me and I am not worthy to untie his shoelaces. Actually, I don't think we get just how lowly that is. In the first century, to, to handle or touch someone's footwear, that is, that's a job that was reserved for the lowest of the low. The lowest servant in a household would take off their master's shoes because roads were filthy. So to take off someone's shoes, that is a lowly job. Um, I think probably the modern equivalent is like being asked to clean out someone's septic tank, all right? So just have that in your mind. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm actually not a big deal. The one who's coming after me, he's a much bigger deal. Actually, I've got to be honest and say, as I was reading through this text, I wondered if the most countercultural thing this passage has to say is what John says here. To see yourself clearly in the light of the Lord Jesus... And like John to say, well, I'm not that big a deal. But here's why John deflects attention away from himself and to Jesus. Because he knows that Jesus offers what he can't. John, you see, can offer a baptism that's a sign of change and repentance. But the one coming after him, he can take the symbol and make it reality. He won't just baptise with water, but with the Spirit. When Jesus comes, he gives the Spirit to all who trust in him, this transforming presence of God with us. John, you see, could speak of repentance and change, but he could not give that. He could not make that transformation real. But when you belong to Jesus... You receive his spirit. You experience, you know, intimacy with God. You know his presence and his power because that is what Jesus brings. So, friends, we've heard two voices. We've heard from Mark. We've heard from John. And then at John's baptism, we hear God's voice. See, in verse 9, Jesus comes to be baptised by John he came from Nazareth to be baptised, and as he's coming out of the water, God's Spirit declares of Jesus this, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is my son, I love him, I'm pleased with him. Now in here there are echoes of the Psalms, and particularly the Psalm that Jeff read for us earlier, Psalm 2 which is this great coronation psalm, which speaks of a, a king of Israel being crowned as a king and he's now in a special relationship with God himself. He's now considered his son. I actually think Jesus' baptism is more than a baptism. This is Jesus being declared by God to be his son. This is what God's people had been waiting for, this return from exile, God's presence again with them by his spirit, and it's all about to happen. It's taking place because the king has come. There it's all happening as Jesus is baptised. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever 
wondered why it is that Jesus went to be baptised in the first place? Like, why is Jesus there? This is a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Does Jesus, like all the other people lining up to receive John's baptism, does he have some dark secret to repent of? It doesn't seem like it because God has just declared him to be his son with you I am well pleased. It does not seem that there's anything that Jesus needs to be repenting of. So why is Jesus there taking this baptism? Well, I think when Jesus comes to be baptised, he comes to identify with those who are going to repent. He takes a place with those who are humbly repenting And in that, we see a little picture of Jesus' whole life and mission. He's come to be with us, to identify with us, to enter into this human life, and more than just identify, to represent us. He comes to be the faithful son of the Father, the son of whom the Father can say, I'm well pleased. I actually think there's a little picture of that in the temptation of Jesus just in those next couple of verses. Do you notice that in verse 12, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights, which sounds a lot like the Exodus, don't you think? And the 40 years the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. Jesus' wilderness journey is just like that moment for Israel, except, except Jesus is faithful, where Israel were not. You see, Jesus has come to be the faithful son in a way that no one in Israel was. He is the son of whom the father can say, yeah, yeah, this is is the one. I'm well pleased with him. Can I say that that is incredibly good news? If you belong to Jesus, he is your representative. He stands in your place. If you are in him... When God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. Here's uh, Tom Wright on what this passage means. I, I thought this was a great quote. Listen to this. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptised and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who've never had this kind of support from their earthly parents, but it is true. God looks at us and says, you're my dear, dear child, I'm delighted in you. Imagine that being said of you, what what God says of Jesus here, you're my dear child, with you I am well pleased. Here's the good news, that is true for anyone who belongs to Jesus the King, because the faithful son was faithful to his father, even to death on a cross. Friends, finally, come to the fourth voice in the text. We've heard Mark, John the Baptist, God the Father, and now finally, Jesus himself. This is his opening line in Mark's Gospel, the first moment we hear him say something, and he speaks about the kingdom. The time has come, he said, last couple of verses of the passage, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, repent, and believe the good news, the gospel. The time has arrived. The kingdom that God has long promised is right here. It's it's come near. And Jesus could say that because right in front of them, well, he, he was the king. 
And he says to them, here's the response that you need to have to the kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Recognize that there is something inside us that needs to be changed and now direct ourselves toward uh, God and believe in the king. Come, Come humbly in faith to him. In short, recognize that there is a king in the world that we need to submit to and come before him and bow the knee. That's it. That's Jesus' simple declaration. I've got to say that was not easy for Jesus' first listeners and it's not easy now to hear that. Repent and believe. There's a new king in town. Uh, We had a friend two years ago Uh, She started coming along to the church we were at. Uh, She grew up going to church Christmas and Easter. And I remember as we were, I think we were working our way through Mark's gospel actually, and um, she was reading the gospel for the first time. And I just remember her furious after one sermon. She came up to me and she said, are you serious? Jesus actually said this? Who does this guy think that he is? That was a great moment. I actually think her response was spot on. What Jesus says here, where he says, repent and believe, it is outrageous. Unless Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who comes to bring in the kingdom. Now, for some of us today, this might be the first time you've heard Jesus say this. And let me say to you that Jesus claims to be king, king of this world, and he calls on you to repent and believe. But for a lot of us here this morning, I I wonder if we need to simply hear again as we start the year that Jesus is the king. Uh, When our kids were growing up, we had this Colin Buchanan CD and it had that, it wasn't wasn't the earworm that we just heard, it was a different earworm, where Colin sings about Jesus being the mighty, mighty king. Parents, do you know that one? Excellent, excellent. (laughs) And he sings on loop, Tony is not the boss, uh uh-uh, and then we work our way through a whole bunch of different names, right? He knows the song. You all know the song. Because Jesus is the boss. I'm sorry if you'd forgotten that song and now your kids remember it and they're going to play it in the car on the way home. Sorry about that. But it's really, really simple, right? We're not the boss because Jesus is. Let me just say, sometimes that's about as, as complex as it needs to be. Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's come to be king. And that means we live with him as as boss. We repent and believe. Friends, at the start of the new year, maybe this is a time to just take stock of where you're at and to, to think to yourself, am I actually living with Jesus as king? Because the king has come. So repent and believe. But remember... He's the king who actually gives the spirit so that we might be made new. Remember, he's the faithful king, the one who stands in our place, the one who was the faithful son who does what we cannot. Remember that and repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that Jesus is the king. Father, we confess to you that so often we do live as though that, has, that is not true. And we confess to you that we wander from 
who you are and what you want us to be. And we wander from living with your son as king. Father, we ask and pray by your spirit, you would enable us to repent and believe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.